the San Francisco Port Commission for February 6, 2024. Roll call, President Kimberly Brandon. Here. Vice President Gail Gilman. Present. Commissioner Ed Harrington. Here. Commissioner Stephen Lee. Here. Commissioner Willie Adams is absent today. The San Francisco Port Commission acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land, and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. We recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatishaloni community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Item two is the approval of minutes for the January 23rd, 2024 Port Commission meeting. So moved. Second. We have a motion and a second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? The motion passes unanimously. The minutes of the January 23rd, 2024 meeting are adopted. Item three is public comment on executive session. Is there any public comment on executive session? Seeing none in the room, Carmel, is there anyone on the phone? For callers on the line, please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. The system will let you know when your line is open. Others will wait on mute until their line is open. Comments will be limited to three minutes per person. Uh, the queue is now open. Please dial star three if you wish to make public comment. And at this time, there are no callers for public comment. Thank you. Public Thank you. comment is closed. Next item, please. Item four is executive session. And there is one executive session item conference with legal counsel and real property negotiator as agendized. I move that we enter into closed session. Second. All in favor? Aye. 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 Any opposed? We are now in closed session.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Item 7 is announcements. Please be advised that the ringing of and use of cell phones and similar sound-producing electronic devices are prohibited at this time. A member of the public has up to three minutes to make public comments on each agenda item unless the Port Commission adopts a shorter period on any item. Public comment must be in respect to the current agenda item. The Commission will take in-person and remote public comment on each item, beginning with commenters in person. For remote public comment, Dial 1415-655-0001 and enter access code 2661-690-0414, pound, pound. Then dial star 3 to raise your hand to comment on the item being discussed. An audio prompt will signal when it is your turn to speak. If you are watching this meeting on SFGov TV, there is a short broadcasting delay. To not miss your chance to comment, please dial when the item you want to comment on is announced, mute your device, and listen to the meeting from your telephone, which has no delay. Item 8 is public comment on items not listed on the agenda. Is there any public comment on items not listed on the agenda? Seeing none, Carmel, do we have anyone on the phone? There are no callers for public comment at this time. Public comment is closed. Next item, please. Item 9 is the Executive Director's Report. For callers who wish to make public comment on this item, please dial star 3 to raise your hand to comment. Good afternoon, President Brandon, Vice President Gelman, members of the Commission, Port staff, and members of the public. I am Elaine Forbes, the Director of the Port of San Francisco, to economic recovery. At our last meeting, you heard about targeted investments that we will be making in the southern waterfront and in Fisherman's Wharf to spur economic growth. Today, Port CFO Nate Cruz will present our proposed budget for the next two years. As you know, the pandemic had really an unprecedented challenge for the port, and we met this challenge with very difficult spending cuts, with successful pursuit of stimulus, and with use of our fund balance or our savings account. Now we're back to pre-pandemic revenues and we also have strong fund balance. But our longstanding challenge to tackle deferred maintenance remains. This challenge, coupled with citywide uncertainty around the downtown office market and the struggles some of our tenants continue to face, means we must be judicious and targeted with our finite resources. The budget you'll see from our CFO is lean, but it targets investments that are strategic for us and will improve our operations including a change to how we manage our parking lots, which is anticipated to increase our revenues 50%, a new approach to security, which we'll discuss shifting away from our reliance on contractors to new port security guards, expanding our partnership with the SFPD, and really leveraging technology. This new method will improve safety and security of our waterfront. We're also making a major investment in race equity with the addition of four new assistant superintendent positions in the maintenance division. This will establish a promoted pathway into management for our staff and the trades and will make more efficient the deployment of resources so jobs are easier to do 
and we should also improve the waterfront with this investment. So you'll see today when you hear the budget that we're really aiming our, our resources at our clean and safe waterfront, which continues to be our top priority. To resilience. We have a big year ahead for resilience, and we've already had a big milestone. Last month, the Army Corps of Engineers and the Waterfront Resilience Program published a draft plan to defend our seven and a half miles of waterfront against sea level rise. After six years of intense analysis and investigation, the Army Corps and Port staff have completed a plan of solutions, and the solutions are tailor-made to the varying conditions along the shoreline. On Friday, January 26th, the Port and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers hosted a press conference to announce the draft plan. Speaker Emerita Nancy Pelosi, our Mayor London Breed, Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, South Pacific Division Commander uh, Colonel James Hondura, State Senator <coughs> Scott Weiner, Board President Aaron Peskin, City Administrator Carmen Chu, and Vice President Gail Gilman joined to give remarks on the significance of the milestone all expressed their support and reaffirmed their commitment to advancing this work. It was a really great press conference for us, and we had two featured art articles in the SF Chronicle. Congratulations to the comms team and port staff on the resilience team for, for pulling that event off. Getting the word out is so important uh, for the public's engagement on this trans transformational project. We're with the uh, release of the plan, uh, public comment period is open, and that will be until March 29. Um, we have a big, uh, robust community engagement uh, plan, uh, which includes four community uh, meetings across town, walking tours on the waterfront, webinars, social media campaign, and a roadshow for community-based organizations across the city. I am hopeful that our partnership with the Army Corps will result in construction projects that make our waterfront safe and resilient and keep a really beautiful public waterfront as well. Much, much work is ahead. Uh, we are in the long game with this project, and we look forward to briefing you today on the study and the results. Turning to equity, I'm delighted to share details about our upcoming Trades Career Fair a significant initiative aimed at introducing high school students and transitioning youth to the vast opportunities that are in the trades. Skilled trade experts, including carpenters, machinists, iron workers, plumbers, electricians, roofers, and more, will deliver insight and engaging presentations at the fair. Also, the Department of Resor Human Resources, other city departments, unions, and community organizations will join us. Our program seeks to provide a comprehensive understanding of apprenticeship programs, their requirements, benefits, and enrollment schedules. Representatives from these organizations will be present to answer questions and offer invaluable insights to the youth. The program will also emphasize the broader impact of construction in the trades and how important infrastructure and projects are to the well-being of our community. In addition, uh, the trades offer a pathway to economic stability and career growth. We are confident that the program will be very informative and helpful to our young people and encourage a new generation to consider the trades as meaningful and impactful career options. And we have positions opened at the port, too. I appreciate your support as we strive to make lasting differences in the lives of our youth and the development of the community. 
We are also continuing to support local small BIPOC-owned businesses at the FoodWise pop-up on the plaza in partnership with the San Francisco Human Rights Commission Dreamkeeper Initiative. Pop-ups on the plaza is a series of events celebrating black, uh, Bay Area black entrepreneurs. The successful event series has expanded from four to six events this year. Um, that now include crafts, beginning with the upcoming pop-up on the plaza, Black Creators Craft Market on uh, Saturday, February 17, 9 to 2. This will be at the South Plaza in front of the Ferry Building. I urge you to mark your calendars. I promise you, you will not regret it if you come. Two key projects. I'm happy to announce we have a conceptual design for the playground going into Crane Cove Park. Uh, San Francisco Parks Alliance has successfully completed 95% of the design. We expect the park to be opened in 2025, and I can't wait uh, for even more kids to come to that fantastic park. We also have other good news. The port has received an accept and expend approval on our PIDP, Ports Infrastructure Development Program, MIRAD grant um, in January. This will allow us to advertise uh, for Amador Street in March of 2024. So we're very excited to see that project in. Obviously, this project will provide better connectivity for our trucking industry, will improve air quality uh, for our southern waterfront residents, and will bring more jobs to the area. And it's the first ever federal infrastructure funds that the port will have received. Um, in closing, on February 2nd, uh, early in the morning at 549 at Beach and Hyde Street, less than a block from our property, Andrew Cotter, a South End Rowing member, he was attacked and his car was hijacked. Uh, he was on his way for a morning swim. Uh, the San Francisco Police Department has done remarkable work to identify some suspects. And they, along with the fire department, took very ca good care of Mr. Cutter at the scene. Staff would like to send him a message for his full and speedy recovery and for his well-being. Thank you, commissioners, for your steadfast leadership and guidance on our strategic plan and for ensuring our economic recovery, equity, and resilience. That concludes my report. Thank you. Is there any public comment on the executive director's report? Seeing none, do we have anyone on the phone? There are no callers for public comment at this time. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Lee? Oh, <clears throat> um, great report. As usual, director, I mean, it's 2024 is looking up. Um, boy, all this information about infrastructure and it's going to be a big challenge, but, you know, we're doing it. And I'm just looking forward to the rest of the year for <clears throat> more of the small business recovery. Seems to be working. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Harrington? Thank you again. Again, good report. Thank you for the intros for the budget and the Army Corps discussing that today. It occurred to me, when talking about the career fair, whether you have any kind of regional or statewide kind of organizations that can do this together. We started a thing for water and wastewater agencies called Baywork, and it is all the Bay Area water and wastewater agencies came together. We worked out career paths with high schools and community colleges. So somebody could say, if I want to be a sanitary engineer, I start here and I can get there. And it's, it's, it, has, it has websites, it has all kinds of stuff. You might want to look at that as a model whether we can work with Oakland and others to kind of see how we can do this. And community colleges love this kind of work where they can kind of do career paths for people. So I would urge you to look at that. Thank you. Great suggestion. 
Vice President Gilman. Um, Director Forbes, thanks for your report. I'm going to hold my comments for budget and the infrastructure report. Um, I just want to say that I wanted to wish Mr. Cutter and his family a speedy recovery. Um, and I also wanted to wish us happy Lunar New Year, which kicks off on, on Saturday. Um, Gung Hai Pak Choi and happy um, Black History Month, too. Um, two communities that have most have been really intertwined in their struggle for civil rights in this country. So I just want, thought we should acknowledge that as well. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. Um, thank you, uh, Director Forbes, for your report. Always a great report. And um, so happy to hear about, uh, it's going to be great to hear about our budget and the resilience effort and more about the draft plan. But just always great to hear that we are reaching pre-pandemic levels and that you know the waterfront is very busy and safe and clean and i, I just want to thank the staff for bringing in the resources to continue to make this a, a place that everybody wants to visit so thank you so much next item please item 10a is an informational presentation on the san francisco waterfront coastal flood study draft integrated feasibility report an environmental impact statement. For callers who wish to make public comment on this item, please dial star three to raise your hand to comment. Good afternoon, commissioners. Brad Benson, uh, Waterfront Resilience Director. Um, the team is really excited to be able to share this work with you today to get your feedback. Um, um, they don't often all get to, um, you know, present at the commission, and uh, I just wanted to thank some of the key leads on, on the effort. Kelly Capone is our project manager for the flood study. Adam Barrett will be giving the presentation today. He's our planning lead. Um, uh, awesome engineers with Steve Real and Matt Wickens. Um, Luis Barada is, is, is leading our, our public outreach. On the Army Corps side, you'll hear today from... Brian Harper, who is the study lead for the Army Corps, and, um, and uh, just backed by an incredible team, Tacey Jensen, Carrie McCabe, Melinda Fisher, uh, Eve Redden, and Andrew Lobo, all bringing just amazing technical skills to the effort. It really is a partnership. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to do is just thank Director Forbes and Mike Martin for sort of guiding us in the really important policy discussions about how we integrate this work with the port mission and all of the important functions along the waterfront and how we engage with the city. Um, it's been such rich engagement. And then finally, um, President Brandon, I'll just remind you of trips that we took to Washington, D.C. in 2018, um, advocating for the need for the Army Corps to get involved. We met with Army Corps leadership, our congressional delegation, and it was really that advocacy that teed up this flood study and got us to this point. So I wanted to thank you for that, for that leadership. And I will pass it off to Brian Harper, who is the planning lead for uh, uh, the, the Southwestern Division. Um, He's going to walk through the beginning of the presentation and then hand it off to Adam Barrett. So thank you so much. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate that. Uh, so I will, uh, I will start by giving a bit of a background and overview. I'm sure hopefully many things that y'all are familiar with. But first, I just wanted to 
uh, thank Brad and, and Ms. Forbes for you know allowing me to participate in this meeting and, and share this briefing with the, uh, the four teams. So, um, if we can move to the next slide, please. Uh, so what is the flood study? I'm, I'm sure that you've, you've uh, um, heard along the way what we're doing, but just to recap, you know, this is a shared effort with the, between the Corps of Engineers and the city of uh, San Francisco led by the port staff. Uh, we're working together on a coastal flood study to study uh, especially the effects of sea level rise, but study flooding along the seven and a half miles of the waterfront that the port has jurisdiction. And now we're reaching this important milestone where we're releasing a draft report of the team um, to report out on the work that the team has done, uh, the recommendations that we're making and what, what is the basis or what's behind that recommendation. And to preview, you know, the, the recommended solutions do uh, add up to an estimated cost of $13 billion. The federal cost share on that would be 65%. Um, but, you know, the plan that is in this draft report is the subject of ongoing re reviews and some continuing process actions that I'll describe um, as I go through this briefing. So, next slide. So on, on our agenda, I will cover the first two items, just give a little bit of an overview of the risks and hazards that are the focus of the study and a process overview of what the, uh, the study um, components, you know, the, the kinds of things that we consider and, you know, that uh, the factors that have led the team to the, the draft plan that we are, we're recommending. And at that point, um, Adam will pick up and walk through the, uh, the draft plan and, and get into some of the details. Next slide, please. Uh, so first, just some of the hazards and risks faced by the waterfront. You know, the waterfront is an active um, location. Many users, you know, residents, businesses, tourists, um, commuters, et cetera, making use of the infrastructure, the cultural experiences, all of that. Uh, but uh, if we go to the next slide, you know, the users of that waterfront, um, the uses of that waterfront, you know, are subject to a couple of um, um, hazards that this study is specifically focused focused on. Uh, starting with the seismic hazard, the, you know, bulkhead, the seawall, the embarcadero, um, all of these uh, features are resting on fill and, and mud, essentially, that um, can become very unstable during a, a seismic event. And the lower, you know, right-hand corner, you can see some settling and spreading that occurred during the 1906 storm. And we would expect, you know, similar kind of outcomes if we were to expect a significant um, earthquake in the area. Uh, so that presents, you know, something, you know, something of a, of a urgent um, risk where, you know, we could have an earthquake at any time. And if we did, that would immediately affect the, the flood risk that the, the area faces as we had some settling along the waterfront and were exposed, you know, to a couple of, uh, well, as we settle by a foot to two, that immediately exposes the area. To, uh, to bay waters that could come in. Um, next slide, please. So as we move from that seismic risk into the flood risk, you know, the areas that were filled in order to create the, you know, the waterfront 100 years ago when the, um, as a seawall was uh, uh, built out and then filled behind, what we see happening is as sea level rises in the bay, um, the bay is going to start trying to reclaim, you know, some of those lower-lying areas. Um, so you can see it outlined here in these areas. What are the areas that are most vulnerable and most exposed, um, potentially exposed to the effects of sea level rise? And 
these are the areas that are the, the subject of our um, flood risk studies that, that we've undertaken as part of the study. Um, next slide, please. So in the near term, we can see signs of the flood risk, as, you know, especially as you have the king tides that come through, as you have at McFerrick Rivers, and as you have compounding conditions that, that drive up the, the water levels in the bay and end up flooding local streets coming over the, the shoreline into the Embarcadero. Uh, but these are only, you know, they're only early indicators of a problem that will get worse over time. And that that is the, you know, primary focus of, of the study effort is like, okay, how much worse and how quickly uh, to what is the severity and the timing of the effects of, you know, these flood risks as, uh, as we see uh, sea level um, rise, you know, with global climate change conditions. Um, next slide, please. So the city has multiple adaptation efforts underway, but this study that we're sharing between the, the core and the port is focused on this, uh, the San Francisco waterfront area, and that's seven and a half miles highlighted by the, uh, the yellow um, boundaries uh, running from Aquatic Park down to Aaron's Head. Um, next slide. So as we look in that area, we we see um, you know up to 500 structures and, and assets, you know critical infrastructure assets that are at at risk, and the damage and disruption and interruptions to business um, from those assets and those structures could amount to 23 billion dollars more over the next um, hundred plus years. Our study, we're focused on the period from 2040 to 2140. Um, and just one side note, that 2040, that period, that, that's our estimated end of construction. construction. So we use that date um, because that's the date that we would expect the benefits of a product, project to begin to accrue. Um, and then we have a 100-year period that we're measuring those costs and, and benefits out to 2140. That allows us to take a long-term view and really examine hey, what will sea level rise do to us over uh, a long time. But it, which it also opens this door for us to manage um, our actions and especially our investments as well as our impacts or disruptions to the local community. We can also manage them over that, that same um, time period as we see um, sea level uh, increasing. Next slide, please. So from a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, we'll go one more, just talk a little process. Um, we are still relatively early in the overall project development process. Uh, we have reached this important milestone with this draft report and it's undergoing reviews right now by the public. We have technical and policy reviews that are occurring within the uh, within the Corps of Engineers. We also have an independent external um, peer review team that will be doing a, a technical um, review um, in the small panel of um, subject matter experts from outside of the Corps will give us their feedback. And of course, um, agencies and and um, the the city um, city departments themselves will also contribute um, feedback to us. The team will work with that feedback to assess the plan that we we've recommended, and uh, and to scope the remaining technical analyses that we'll do before we complete the feasibility study. Uh, the feasibility study is scheduled to be completed by the end of next year, 2025. 
so that we have a recommendation to deliver to Congress by early in 2026. Uh, um, you, you probably are aware that uh, that we are we receive our authorizations from Congress through our WERDAs, our Water Resources Development Acts. They're on a two-year cycle to 20. So our goal is to make the Water Resource Development Act of 2026 with um, that recommendation from our chief of engineers. Uh, completing the report then opens the door for us to move into um, PED, pre-construction engineering and design, where we continue the design development of the project. Uh, and then uh, that would be expected to occur over about a five-year time frame from 26 to 20, from 2026 to 2030. And then um, from 2030 on, you know, initiating construction again with our goal to have, you know, at least major elements of the project in place by, um, by 2040. Um, all of those items from design to construction are subject to uh, funding availability, our appropriations on the federal side from Congress, but of course also uh, matching funds available at the, uh, the local level. So we'll, you know, we'll manage the implementation strategy according to the, uh, the resources that are available to the project. So um, next slide, please. Uh, so, what is in the draft plan? Uh, well, you know, we wanted to answer some big questions first. Um, where should we build the flood defenses? We considered options for moving bayward, having you know, increased fill in the bay to uh, minimize or reduce landside impacts, um, or conversely, move you know, inland so we can avoid bay uh, fill impacts and uh, you know, have, have incur the impacts on the um, um, on the land side of, of the shoreline. Um, we also considered things like how high or what scale to defend uh, against. And, you know, the, the scale is going to be entirely dependent upon, you know, how, how fast sea levels do rise. Um, and scale will then also come, bring with it resource requirements. You know, what, what are the costs and the environmental and social impacts of the project? So as we build bigger to, to defend ourselves, uh, we incur, you know, we have those costs and impacts that we have to manage. So, um, and then how much space to use? You know, do we, um, do we, do we impact the full roadway, especially the Embarcadero, that three, three and a half miles of the uh, Northern waterfront area? And, um, you know, how, how, you know, how much, uh, we have some design options that uh, you know allow us to use features that that would make use of more space, um, but then that of course comes with disruption. And then you know where we have to take up less space, then we got to figure out how to maintain access through slopes and grade changes and and features like that. Uh, in other areas of the waterfront, we having more space might actually be a good thing where we're opening the door to increase recreation activities through the, the creation of green spaces and things like that. So depending on where we are in the waterfront area, uh, more or less space you know, has impacts or other beneficial opportunities. And we wanted to you know, present all of these trade-offs uh, as we consider concept plans. Um, next slide, we can move into what's not in the plan. The, um, I'm sorry, can we go to the next slide? Harper, is it not advancing for you? And it didn't at this end. 
I'm sorry if y'all y'all saw it advance and I didn't. There might be a lag, or uh, so far it seems to be going okay. But that was that was a little bit slow. Um, so what's not in the plan? Uh, as I said, we wanted to add, answer some of those big question questions first about you know where, how big, uh, general location, you know, and and you know general location size, and you know how how important is it to defend at the waterfront or at the shoreline versus, you know, making room for water or going into the bay. Um, so those are the big questions, but we don't, you know, we don't have all of the design tail details figured out. We first want to get feedback on some of those bigger questions um, so that, you know, so that we can get those issues settled before we move into the design details. So the next phase of study will be to initiate more of um, more of the design development what exactly do the features look like um, and, as well as defending some or developing some strategies for implementation you know what timing and sequencing options do we have um, what are the things that would allow us to manage the funding for the plan and those kind of things so right now those items are not in the plan they are part of the work that will be de developed as we go move to a final report and also as we move into a um, into the design phase for the project uh, the draft plan also you know it is not a design for the future waterfront um, the one of the key components of this this project and this point in the project is the ability of the core to say yes we do see an opportunity for uh, our agency to partner with the city to develop a a coastal a, a flood project in the area um if we can agree that yeah there's there's that opportunity now we can start working some of the details about how does this project then interact with other uses of the waterfront and in particular you know other infrastructure systems that the that, that the city manages and that that uh, that others are interested in and similarly with the historic districts and other um historic um, um structures in the waterfront you know once we you know as we move forward in the process we can start working details about how these things will will come together in that space um, next slide please so how did we develop the plan? We did start with those hazards that, you know, I mentioned earlier, the earthquake and flood hazards, analyzing, okay, what do those hazards mean in terms of consequences? You know, what what would the impact be on people in the in the community, on businesses, on structures and infrastructure, on the operations of the transportation networks, but doing an assessment of the risks and the impacts to people and property and infrastructure in the study area in order to give um, some measure to them, you know, put them in, in metrics that we can then work with as we, you know, try to find effective solutions. So working with those risk, risk assessments and what kinds of impacts would be felt from flooding or from earthquake, what then are opportunities to take actions, you know, design and construct projects that would then begin to effectively address or, or reduce those risks. So how do we reduce the impacts to people and property and the infrastructure? Um, there was extensive you know, local um, engagement, uh, 150 plus events, um, obtaining uh, community feedback on uh, what, you know, what the community feels would is most important, as well as what types of actions you know, they viewed as, as most promising. Um, but you know, bringing that into the study 
and using that to develop um, seven conceptual strategies for how we believe we can combine all of all of these things. You know, how can we scale the project? You know, the location shifting waterward or landward, um, while also um, incorporating or or acknowledging the input from the community that allows us to avoid or minimize um, impacts to the community while achieving our um, our risk outcomes. We use all of that to uh, do a pretty thorough cost and benefit analysis and uh, present you know, quite a large set of metrics on cost and benefits so that you know, we can report that out to both policymakers and to the public to get the, um, the feedback that we need on the alternative. So all of that comes together in the draft plan. The feedback that we get on that draft plan will then set the stage for us to get to a final feasibility report with a recommended plan that does um, acknowledge and incorporate you know, all of that public feedback as well as you know, technical and policy feedback. Next slide, please. So that's the stage that we're in right now going through those reviews. That, that comprehensive cost-benefit analysis, though, while the tradition within the core is to focus primarily on economics and rely on benefit-cost ratios and dollar-denominated metrics, um, this study is um, a first for us in a couple of different ways, but one of the major ways is, is the way in which um, non-monetary effects are being considered, and particularly the impacts to people in the community, and ensuring that we're um, considering these other categories of effect, you know, like social connectedness and social vulnerability and resiliency, community identity, health and safety, um, and then the other forms of economic um, vulnerability aside from the, the normal um, you know, dollar metrics that the core uses. So we have a, a wide set of metrics across social, environmental, and economic accounts that are disclosed in the, in the draft report. And the team has used all of them to, to come up with the plan that we recommend. And it, it is unusual for the core because, again, it doesn't rely solely on that benefit-cost ratio, but does also include the social metrics that um, uh, you know, place an emphasis on also making sure that we have equitable outcomes across the um, project area and across the populations you know, uh, that we have. Next slide, please. Um, so, what happens as we go forward? Um, we, the draft plan itself includes what we identify as first actions. We believe that the most important recommendation we can make is how to start, what initial features, <coughs> what initial um, items should be included in the project. And then from there, um, we would propose to monitor uh, conditions, especially sea level rise and global climate indicators, but also local development patterns, uh, local activities on the, on the ground in the study area, but monitor all of these things and make uh, future decisions on how to continue to adapt the project through subsequent actions that allow us to continue to defend against um, increasing sea levels. So initially our goal is to defend against a foot and a half to three and a half feet of sea level rise where ultimately um, we, we would expect to be able to continue modifying the project to defend against up to seven feet of sea, sea level rise. 
And even beyond that, there are projections that would expect sea level rise over the next 100 years to, to possibly even exceed that level. Uh, but, you know, that level of bay rise would likely require, you know, different decisions than the ones that, that we're initially making. So our goal now is not to make decisions that can be made 100 years from now, but to make the decisions that get us through the next 50 years or so, um, so that we then enable ourselves and it's basically future decision makers um, to make the best decisions for the community at that time based on the changing conditions that um, that they do see. Next slide. Uh, part of the study is in addition to our benefit cost analyses, of course, we also uh, did environmental assessments uh, as part of uh, complying with the National Economic Protection Act. Uh, so we do have an environmental uh, impact statement in the EIS that is integrated into the draft feasibility report and discloses the, the information that is required to uh, coordinate with resource agencies around um, the impacts, the environmental and social impacts of the project. Next slide, please. So as we did that environmental review, you know, we're primarily focused on the impacts of those first actions that are our emphasis and complying with the various laws and, and um, executive orders, as well as accounting for the mitigation that we would that would be required um, for the the impacts that we do um, do estimate to occur. Um, there ha there are some unavoidable ad adverse impacts. We we do have um, a, a small amount of added bay fill, um, so there would be some lost habitat as we. Uh, um, uh, do work there along the shoreline, but generally speaking, we have avoided loss of marshes and eelgrass, beaches, and intertidal habitats, and uh, aim to continue to do so through the project. And with that note, I'll also acknowledge that we, we are pursuing opportunities to have nature-based solutions, um, things like living shorelines um, and other kind of features that can be incorporated into the project so that um, you're not only mitigating our impact, but perhaps creating some beneficial outcome in some areas along the shoreline that are currently um, in a degraded um, condition. So we'll be on the lookout for those opportunities, and that will also be <coughs> part of our work as we, as we move forward. And with that, I will turn it over to Adam to talk about the draft plan details. All right, thank you, Harper. Um, Adam Barrett, uh, Port Staff, very excited to be here and to be presenting this big milestone to you today of being able to release the draft plan to the public and enter into uh, uh, a period of getting public feedback and comment on the plan and working closely with the Army Corps as we've done. So I'm gonna walk through what, what's in the content of the draft plan here and some of the key sort of policy considerations uh, for the port and for this commission. Uh, so what you see here is sort of an overview of uh, the major kind of big moves of the draft plan. And so what we're looking at is the uh, study area from Heronshead Park up to Aquatic Park and divided into kind of four sub areas or what the Army Corps calls reaches. Uh, and I'll go through reach by reach. Um, but what you're looking at here is sort of generally speaking, you know, a, a, a strategy to elevate and adapt the current existing shoreline uh, with seismically sound structures, whether they're seawalls or levees or things like that. As, as Harper mentioned, incorporating nature-based features such as living seawalls and creek enhancements where we can, 
adapting portions of the historic district, the wharves and the bulkhead buildings. And then in, in some areas, particularly in Fisherman's Wharf, looking at flood proofing of certain buildings and piers. And then making related kind of inland drainage, stormwater management improvements so that we can uh, continue to, to get stormwater out to the sea as we elevate the shoreline, or out to the bay, I should say. And all of this is based on that over six years of public engagement uh, in which we've gotten kind of feedback on the draft plan. And I'll kind of go into that a little bit more at the end of the presentation. So to go kind of reach by reach, starting with Fisherman's Wharf, uh, which the reach really extends out to Pier 27 or so. This is an area that is largely on somewhat higher ground <coughs> and protected by existing breakwaters. And we didn't see a lot of flood damage through the study. And so we have a sort of lower scale approach to uh, adaptation here. So in this reach, we are proposing to flood proof certain buildings to protect or defend against flooding uh, on those, those particular assets, as well as adding kind of short flood walls around the piers and then connecting to the higher ground along Aquatic Park. And here's a little bit more detail on what that means. So you can sort of imagine flood proofing around the ground floors of uh, existing buildings to keep water out or to modify the building to let water in, but with minimal damage. And we would also be adding kind of short two foot flood walls around the piers that would defend the piers um, and, and kind of extend their useful life from a flood perspective against kind of storms and tides. Uh, and so in this area, we're seeing uh, sea level rise protection in the form of flood proofing of kind of buildings and assets that are at risk. Um, what this means though is that we're not doing a kind of comprehensive raising of the shoreline and kind of seismic improvement. So we really need to be looking to other projects such as the ports kind of public private partnerships and our early projects that, that we are working through with the uh, Prop A bond money, such as uh, improvements to uh, Wharf <coughs> J9. Uh, so we're going to be looking to these other projects to provide near-term kind of adaptation and seismic improvement in this area. Moving to Reach 2, which extends from uh, kind of Telegraph Hill, Pier 27, down to the Bay Bridge. This is an area where we see extensive flood damages, low-lying areas, high concentration of, uh, you know, of dense uses. Um, and so in this area, we're proposing to uh, elevate the shoreline to defend against up to three and a half feet of sea level rise, uh, which is a higher kind of sea level rise projection that we would expect to kind of last to end of century using a high sea level rise projection. Um, in this area, we, we are proposing to do that um, kind of as a first action because of the sort of lack of available space to do uh, subsequent actions and the sort of dense concentration of buildings, transportation and utility infrastructure, um, and the disruption that it would cause to do kind of multiple actions, uh, you know, over time to the Embarcadero and the, the activity along the Embarcadero. We would also be adapting portions of the historic district, including the uh, wharves, the bulkhead buildings and also the ferry building, meaning <coughs> elevating those uses and adding those short flood walls around the piers. And here's sort of a visualization of how that might work. So kind of using the existing seawall would be rebuilt and adapted to that three and a half feet of sea level rise at an elevated level and then graded gradually back to the existing city grade so we could keep that kind of visual and physical connection to the waterfront. <coughs> Um, 
I should mention, you know, we don't have, this is, as, as Harper mentioned, this is not a design plan. This is a very high level kind of where and how high and design details, you know, we can, we can work through at later stages. And then you see in the sort of salmon color here, we're also proposing to uh, elevate the wharves parallel to the shore and the historic buildings along the wharves, the bulkhead buildings and the ferry building, um, and then transitioning down to the piers, which would have the kind of two-foot flood wall around the piers. So to be clear, the piers are not adapted or elevated in this scenario. They would receive kind of short flood walls that would extend their useful life in this way. The bulkhead buildings and the wharves uh, parallel to the pier are elevated to kind of match the shoreline there. And in this area, uh, as in summary, we would be elevating the shoreline to withstand up to three and a half feet of sea level rise and making those associated seismic ground improvements, maintaining connection to the waterfront, protecting our utility and transportation networks. Uh, and there are options uh, to add kind of nature-based features such as living seawalls. Um, and there are no subsequent actions in this area because we're building directly to that higher level of sea level rise. Moving south along the shoreline into South Beach and Mission Bay, this is going from the Bay Bridge all the way down to Pachero Point, including the kind of South Beach, Mission Creek shoreline and Mission Bay shoreline. Also, very low-lying area where we see significant amounts of uh, economic damage and exposure to populations who live and work there. Um, in this area, we would be proposing to elevate the shoreline to defend against one and a half feet of sea level rise, um, and then that would be further adapted uh, in time. There is more space to provide sort of uh, berm or levee-like features that are more easily adapted over time uh, and so can come in later as the need arises to do subsequent actions. Uh, we would be looking at elevating the shoreline with seawalls along the South Beach and ballpark uh, sections and then kind of berms, <coughs> low-lying berms or levees along the banks of the creek and the Mission Bay shoreline and this would connect to areas where we have either development projects or port uh, open space projects that are already developing to higher ground, such as Mission Rock, Pier 70, uh, Crane Cove Park, and Bayfront Park. We would also be proposing to add what's called a closure structure along the 3rd and 4th Street bridges over Mission Creek so that we could close that kind of gap or low point during uh, intense storms or tide events. Um, you know, this could be disruptive in the sense that if it were employed, the transportation, including the Muni that goes over those bridges would need to stop for a time period. Initially, and for several decades, we think this would be a very infrequent occurrence, less than once a year. But as it continues, these would need to become more frequent. And the long-term solution here is really to uh, adapt and elevate those bridges. In this area, again, you know, kind of providing that sea level rise protection to withstand up to one and a half feet of sea level rise, making those seismic ground improvements um, and, and all the other features that we saw uh, in REACH 2. We have early projects going on here and then here is where uh, we would be seeing that sort of monitoring of sea level rise uh, indicators and climate indicators to, to say, to, to show us when we have a trigger to say, okay, we need to start designing and planning and building that next adaptation to get us up to a higher sea level rise uh, adaptation level. And then moving to Reach 4, Islayas Creek and Bayview from Petrero Point down to Heron's Head Park. Again, a very low-lying area subject to compound flooding from coastal 
flooding, inland drainage, and groundwater, uh, groundwater rise as well, so sort of complex flooding scenarios in this area, um, and, and a lot of damages to kind of port facilities um, and the surrounding industrial land. Um, in this area, similar to Reach 3, we'd be looking at a combination of uh, elevating the shoreline to defend against that one and a half feet of sea level rise by adding kind of short flood walls around the piers and then sort of vegetated berms around some of the more natural areas and creek banks in that area. We'd also be uh, adding the closure structures al alongside the Illinois Street Bridge. Uh, with the Third Street Bridge, uh, the Department of Public Works has an ongoing funded project to, uh, to rebuild and elevate that bridge to already accommodate sea level rise. So that one is addressed with that project. This uh, is showing kind of what these berms or levees would, could look like and could include kind of habitat and nature-based features as well as recreational uh, and open space features along, along the banks of these berms. And similar to Reach 3, we would be defending the shoreline against one and a half feet of sea level rise and then in a later subsequent move adapting up to three and a half feet of sea level rise when we got that kind of trigger uh, or indicator that we, are, that, that we need to start designing and building those improvements. So we're, you know, we're really trying to be responsive to what we've heard from the public, looking at kind of building flood defenses that improve public safety uh, and emergency response by protecting our disaster recovery facilities, really putting people first and defending, uh, you know, things that people need for their daily lives, housing, transportation, utilities, community assets, um, maintaining and enhancing those connections to the waterfront um, and improving the public <coughs> and then adding kind of nature features and, and ecological habitat uh, wherever we can through this, through this process and something that can be um, you know, expanded upon as we refine the plan uh, and, and, and differs where, depending on the amount of space available within the plan area. So just to go into a few sort of key policy considerations that we wanted to highlight for your consideration, um, the first is that this is, you know, this is a mega project, this is a massive complex and expensive undertaking. Um, it's not something that's going to be built all at once. It's going to depend on funding availability um, and, and other factors. So we're going to have to sort of phase and prioritize how we, how we build in these first actions based on things like where we see the highest level of risk, equity considerations, uh, opportunities to coordinate with uh, public or private investments and, and other factors like that. So this is something we're going to be developing through the next phase of the plan, a little more detail about how can this be phased in over time and what are the priority uh, earliest pieces to be built. Um, then we're going to go to um, looking at equity. Um, this is really a core consideration of the planning work that we've done. It's guided by the, the work that the port has done on the racial equity action plan. Uh, and as Harper mentioned, you know, we really incorporated social equity considerations into how we analyzed developed and selected the draft plan, including thinking about the exposure of vulnerable populations and kind of how we could mitigate that exposure, benefit the people that live there, and kind of minimize the burdens on uh, BIPOC communities. Another consideration is historic preservation. This is obviously very uh, important to the working of the port and this commission and the two historic districts of the port stewards, the Embarcadero and Union Ironworks historic districts, so we've convened uh, a technical advisory committee make up, made up of local historic preservation experts 
to help us, uh, you know, inform our and, and provide feedback on the plan from a, from a historic preservation standpoint. Uh, we're also going to be working through a process of uh, compliance with Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act through the Environmental Review. And that means we're going to be working closely with the Army Corps as well as the State Historic Preservation Officer to make sure that as we're adapting the Ports Historic Districts, we're doing it consistent with the Secretary of the Interior Standards. And, and we are, you know, adapting and, and modifying uh, some of these uh, historic resources in a way that's necessary because they need to be adapted to the, the coming coastal flood risk. And so we're, you know, we're working to kind of preserve the ferry building, the seawall, the historic wharves and, wharves and adapt these to, uh, to sea level rise over time. And finally, um, this is, you know, we've worked in very close partnership uh, with the Army Corps throughout this. We think it's a great plan. We also, as a city, saw ways that we think that the plan can be strengthened and items that we want to continue to work through as we uh, refine the plan and work towards that kind of final recommended plan uh, next year. And so we're looking at kind of how can we refine that design in terms of improving public space, nature, and waterfront access. Um, how can we increase the risk reduction, so extending the Embarcadero Historic District improvements so that it, that gets uh, all the way up to Pier 35, um, as well as looking at scaling actions to a higher level in those southern reaches as an initial action. Um, we need to do more work to understand the level of uh, contaminated sites and how to remediate uh, those materials uh, associated with uh, constructing this project, as well as the sort of uh, inland drainage uh, costs and, um, and modifications that would need to be made along with the plan. And finally, you know, we really want to do this with an eye to the, the sort of port's economic recovery um, and, and investment and really trying to minimize the disruption to port tenants and private property owners on the city side, um, as well as, as, as mitigating impacts to historic resources and the environment. And so last section, you know, we're entering into this public comment period started on January 26th as we released the draft plan and the comment period goes through March 29th of this year. These comments will be collected formally through the core process and considered uh, in draft plan, uh, in the draft plan uh, refinements process. And so there are a number of ways and we want to highlight that, you know, there are ways for people to kind of formally submit their comment on this plan. We have a number of community workshops, walking tours, webinars, CBO stakeholder meetings and, and other ways of engaging at our website, sfport.com slash WRP. And you can provide comments, written comments on the plan via email to this address, you can mail and online at our website. And so with that, I just want to leave you with, you know, this is an opportunity both to defend our shoreline and our waterfront and assets uh, against flooding and seismic hazards, and also to kind of think about the waterfront that we have build on and enhance the great waterfront and historic districts that we have today and think about the waterfront of the future. So with that, we're available for questions and we have many members of the team here <coughs> who can help answer the questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that presentation. Thank you, uh, Brad, Brian, and Adam. Great presentation. I'd like to open it up to public comment. Is there any public comment in the room? Seeing none, do we have anyone on the phone?
There are no callers for public comment at this time. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Harrington. Thank you, President Brandon. Uh, there's so much good to hear about this. It's wonderful. And thank you for kind of telling us and telling us again and telling us again. And we're going to be hearing it a lot, but that's a good thing. Um, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has a history kind of of being fairly narrowly focused on things, sometimes myopic from some people's point of view. So it's really nice that there took such a broad view of this discussion. And so it's not just how can we build something with an engineering response, but social, equity, economic, all those kind of things are brought into it. So that's really, really very welcome, and I appreciate that so much. Um, the idea of having you know, a nature-based solution as part of this, I think, is wonderful. I was a little concerned when I started looking in the, the first waterfront one had no nature-based solution, and then the next part for the Embarcadero said optional. I thought, mm, not, uh, not again. So I was very happy the last two reaches really had integral parts of it. And I would encourage you to keep looking for making the nature-based solution more, more integral to what's going on. Um, so I, I think it's wonderful and that we're moving finally on this. Not finally, but I mean that it's, it's moving continually. Um, I have some questions, and I don't feel the need to get answers today, if you can if you want to respond, that's fine or not. But if you want over time to be able to bring back information, that would be great. I guess the first is, clearly, this is our responsibility for the port-owned waterfront. But there's parts of the city that aren't included in this. So the northern and the southern kind of adaptation areas. I'd love to hear what, what else is happening at some point, who's doing what, how that relates to what we're doing, and whether it, there's a real, I mean, Obviously, if you build a wall here and there's nothing next to it, that's not a good thing. So how does it, how does it all fit together it would be really nice to see. Um, the second thing is kind of the finances. You know, I, when I started saying, oh, $13.5 billion, big, big money, you know, we get 35% of it to figure out, it occurred to me that we don't want this to be like high-speed rail or the east span of the, goal of the Bay Bridge where we announce a number and then every time for the next 40 years, somebody blames us for not living within that number. Because we don't know what's in this. We know what's not in this, so we know there's part of that there. And as part of the feasibility study even, it's not 13 and a half, it's 20 when you do escalation to midpoint of construction. So we need to figure out how to talk about the size of this in a way that doesn't stick us with a number that we'll be blamed for for the rest of our natural lives, whether that's a range, whether that's a big number, but, but let's, not, let's not say it's 13 and a half billion because it won't be. Um, so figure out how to do it. I, w I was a little interested, I, I don't follow the details of the federal budget enough. It's, it's budgeted in the Water Resources Development Act. Is that part of the defense budget? Since it's the Army Corps of Engineers, is it part of an EPA budget? Who, Whose budget is it? What cabinet is it under? Um, <clears throat> so, Brad Benson, uh, all great questions, and I won't attempt to answer all of them. Um, uh, the Water Resources Development Act is the authorizing vehicle for projects like this. Um, the Energy and Water Appropriations Bill is the appropriations okay. vehicle for this. Um, uh, and it, it flows through DOD to the Army Corps of Engineers, okay. which both serves some defense purposes and civil works projects like this, water resources projects like this. I guess the question is, the defense budget seems to be so protected compared to most other ones. Are we part of that? Harper, I think this may be a better <coughs> question. 
question for you. We to are not. The defense appropriations show up in a separate bill. Our That's civil right. works projects show up in the energy and water appropriations. So we're lumped together with the Department of Energy primarily. That that's that makes sense. That's what I've expected. But I thought, gee, maybe we'd be lucky to be in such a big, huge thing. Everybody seems to love. Okay, that's great. Um, there's a, a couple other questions. The um, the relation to stormwater. You know, as we're talking about elevating the Embarcadero, and obviously it's sitting on top of the stormwater big big box sewers. We're looking at doing a lot of design work over the next five to 10 years, but we're also looking, I, I think the PUC has $4 billion in their budget for the next four years, working on the Southeast outfall. There's so much going on in other parts of the city, but particularly the PUC. Are, I hope we're coordinating with them and or making sure that if they're doing something ahead of us, that they're doing it in a way that will fit in what we want to do ultimately. Does that sound right? So we've been coordinating closely with uh, the other departments through the Climate SF initiative. So we've got staff level, deputy level, and directors all sort of talking and about the policy issues. On the more technical side, the PUC is one of those agencies that I've actually spent quite a bit of their resources engaging with this plan, helping us with some of the modeling of the stormwater okay. impacts. I think, as you know from your former role, the PUC is only mandated right now through its combined sewer system to deal with the five year storm um, and we're looking at uh, the need to manage even more stormwater than that if we're elevating the shoreline. So we're going to have to worry about the 100 year storm and they've been in all of those technical conversations and that's one of the issues that Adam highlighted that needs to get resolved. The Army Corps has a different estimate for the inland drainage costs in the plan than the SFPUC. So we're going to be working through a collaborative process to really sort of answer, is that part of the plan sized the right way? Great. And, and what you mentioned there reminds me that the whole discussion of what's the timing, not for doing it, but the time horizon of what we're trying to fix, sounds like it makes sense to me the way it's being described, so I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, and the other part of your question that I'll answer is your concern about costs and people getting fixed on the costs. And we actually had a big discussion about this. These are very high-level cost estimates. We expect that they will change. Um, and and uh, so just know that, that we're going to try and uh, sort of message that appropriately to the public because it does undermine confidence in government when the costs appear to change over time. So we have to be very careful about that. And it wouldn't undermine if it went down, but it never goes down. <laughs> so yeah, thanks. <laughs> I doubt it. Thank you. Commissioner Lee? Um, <sighs> Well, I'm glad it's um, we got a price tag, but I know it's like uh, Commissioner Harris said, it's not going to be the same, especially five years from now. I'm just curious. Things are happening very fast. What happens if we have to do this qu quicker than five years from now to start construction? Um, is it just sit around? You know, we have because we haven't you know gone through all the process, but then suddenly there's an emergency. You know that things are are already you know breaching the wall. Um, that's that's one question. Another thing is on the small business part of it. You know, obviously um, the roadways and things, and you know how construction with the Muni has been wiped out a lot of small businesses. Is there a, a, a mitigation plan or anything kind of plan? How do we 
deal with these small businesses that have to be relocated or do we shorten their leases and let them take a break? I mean, there's a lot of things that when we start doing construction, uh, we might have our own little economic problem because we're going to have to shut down a lot of our small businesses on the, on the waterfront. Um, so I'm just wondering if there's going to be a plan or contingency plan written about how to deal with this um, because you have a lot of um, small businesses along the, I mean, not maybe on the shoreline of the south, but up in the north and the central. I've, I can imagine, especially when you're knocking out the roadway, you know, how, what are we going to do about that? So that's kind of the other question I have. But other than that, I'm glad it's here. I, I just hope it hurries. <laughs> So maybe to your first question about sort of the storm risk that we might face in the near term, we're, we're quite concerned about that as well. We have, we have an existing flood risk, and we've got that Embarcadero Muni portal right out on the Embarcadero. We don't want to have a New York type of experience in San Francisco. We're advancing an early project through the port that got FEMA funding that we're trying to get in, into the ground before 2030 construction would start on that project. Um, so we don't want to wait around for the bigger move to address the critical risk now. That's part of the strategy. Um, uh, and there is flood risk today, right? There is yeah. flood risk in multiple locations of the water waterfront today. If we got a big 500-year storm, which we have not experienced, there would be damages associated with that. Um, on your second point, this is a point that Director Forbes has been really focusing the team on. It's this disruption. We're, we're a great waterfront because we're built up right up to the edge. It's a great sort of very unique uh, sort of experience of the bay right there. <laughs> um, and what we're doing is trying to change that sort of highly developed shoreline. And we have to approach it in a very thoughtful way. Um, so we've, you know, Director Forbes has asked for a phasing plan that makes sense, that won't shut down the waterfronts. We've got to maintain it, uh, you know, sort of open for public enjoyment. We're doing research about how other large projects around both the country and the world are handling big infrastructure projects in highly developed urban areas and how you implement those so that you can provide sort of ongoing public access and commerce and activity and that doesn't change the fact that there will be disruption, right? So we have to plan for that, but manage it in a way that will benefit our tenants and our public and the people who enjoy and rely on the waterfront. Is there a time frame for that? Um, for that kind of report? Uh, we're, so we're working with the Army Corps on the phasing piece and internally at the port and with other city departments, that's work that will happen over the next couple of months conceptually at a high level. It will advance through the study a bit. Uh, we can come back after we've done some of that initial work internally and with the departments in the Army Corps and present you with the information about where we are at that time. So I think that's a good report back to the commission. And we want to continue talking about this issue because it's going to be one of the key issues that we'll be facing in terms of public engagement. So let's let's keep on yeah. talking about it. Yeah, because I think one thing you haven't factored is how much lost revenue we will have during this process. So not only the cost of building it, how about the cost of losing money on rental income that we might have to defer? Yeah, and and. 
part of that phasing plan and thinking about how we're managing disruption goes to the other point that you mentioned, which is tenant relocation. You know, it's like if we're doing construction in the area, are we being thoughtful about how we're managing our relationship with the Ports Lifeline, which are our maritime and real estate tenants? All right. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Vice President Gilman. Thank you. Great comments from my fellow commissioners. Um, just sort of, th these are more just, I want to make sure my framing is correct. They're not really questions, and it's also part of this is just for the public. So when we go back to the very beginning of your presentation in the staff report, um, there's pre-construction and engineering and design, but we're, we're hoping, like, best case scenario, construction starts possibly in 2030. After 2030. After what we're saying right now, we're not trying to be exact. <coughs> right. So, so we have at least six. What, what I guess what I'm getting at is we have six to seven years, possibly a decade, where we're still pre-designing, we're still figuring it all out, um, and where we can look at when we're entering into new leases with people or extending leases, how we put some of these safeguards in place. So we're not just hit with a barrage of, you know, we're closing off. I don't know. Battery and Embarcadero tomorrow, um, Fog City, you're out, right? So, uh, like on the seawall side. So, I guess I just want, like, to me, what I think is so great about this presentation and all the um, community outreach we're doing is, um, while we um, are absolutely going to get it done and get it done right, um, we have such a great community process. We, we're starting very, very early in all these conceptual ideas. Um, so, you know, hopefully construction starts and then we're thinking a decade of construction. We're still working on that timeline. We think that actually some of these improvements could be implemented over decades, and that's part of the phasing work that we okay. need to do. And it's like that's going to be informed by risk. You know, we want to go to those high-risk areas first, but we need to also manage the construction because of the cost of it. And so what can the, what can the city, what can the federal government afford to pay for over time? So how we balance those different factors. Okay. Well, I'm excited to see some of these projects completed in my lifetime. And um, what, what I also was just getting at for the public, I think particularly because of all the press, which, again, is part of the phenomenal community outreach that we're doing. We're not raising the ferry building tomorrow. Um, and as my neighbor asked, she, it's like she asked if she's going to walk up a steep hill. And I was like, no, it's not happening tomorrow. But I, but I do hope, in line with what Com Commissioner Harrington said, um, you know, lessons learned from other mega projects and I just think high-speed rail unfortunately you know is you know a good example um, I just hope on the phasing that they're more like little puzzle pieces that if we can get through phases for you know like two through eight and then for some reason the pro project runs out of money it's not like a train to nowhere it has mitigated a certain amount of risk and that we do it equitably so it's across our whole waterfront I think that's what's really unique about this project versus a high-speed rail that has a start a stop and a bunch of, it's very linear, is we could get through much of this phasing or, or you know, some of these first actions and have improvements, um, even if I don't see the complete plan done in my lifetime. So I just sort of wanted just to articulate that. And then, um, Brad, too, I also wanted to just say that I really appreciate you bringing in your team to present to us. Um, some of them have been presented to us before, and I think that's it sort of leads into budget, which we're going to see sort of leadership development, equity, and laddering so that we give people leadership opportunities. So I just wanted to thank you. You've been before us so much with this report, but I really appreciate your team being here and co-presenting. I just wanted to have that reflection. 
Thank you. If I, I sorry, I did want to respond because I think there's two items that are between all the commissioner comments. There's sort of a phasing plan that I think is what uh, Brad was sort of mentioning. We're going to be sort of working on where, what are the priority areas? Where would we start work based on you know risk, lowest areas, et cetera? And then there's a level of detail that's sort of a construction staging level of detail, and that you know maybe more to the sort of tenant tenant relocations and things like that. That would happen at a later stage when we get into that detailed design. So there's sort of two scales of that that are happening. Thank you. Uh, thank you again for the report. A lot of great information, and it's hard to believe that we just started this process in 2018 and how far we've come. So I really want to thank you and congratulate your team and our consultants and the Army Corps and the great partnerships that we've developed along the way to get us where we are because I think San Francisco is being very proactive in this regard and really preparing ourselves for what eventually will happen <coughs> over time. So thank you again for the report. And a lot of the questions I have have been answered. Um, just wanted to, to ask, when we go to seek congressional funding, are we seeking funding for the entire project at that point? Or what phase of the project are we seeking congressional funding for? So I would say that there are two steps okay. in the federal process. There's authorizing mm -hmm. and then appropriating. And right. we want to authorize the project uh, because that's the that that's what the chief's report will recommend. It's like the whole project, but we're going to do all of this phasing work <laughs> to think about how we can meter this out over time, and we'll first be seeking design funding for some of those first improvements, and then after we complete that design, we'd go back and seek construction funding for those first improvements. And, and so, so how often do we have to go back? We're going to be going to Washington D.C. every other year. <laughs> okay. So we have to go. So we have to go every other year for funding. But once you have the authorization, so that the that was yeah, that was my question. Flow. You know, are we going for the total authorization or? So let let me okay. let me address yeah. this. Okay. So very few projects across the country get all of their funding in one lump. It has happened uh, recently with some projects. Denver was very lucky in the infrastructure bill and got a huge chunk of money, pretty much all of their federal funding. That's atypical. <laughs> Usually, you're fighting in each, fighting, advocating in each budget cycle for the funding to advance your project for the next couple of years. And so the Army Corps makes requests through the President's budget. You can also advocate that Congress add more. And so, so you tee up your project and your political support for the project, your community support, and then you have to go and engage regularly over time to get your funding. So in 2026, what will we be asking for? Design funding for first, first sort of actions based on that phasing plan. We'll go through a process that will be transparent to you, the commission, and the public come up with a phasing plan. These are the most important areas where we think we're starting, and the design funding would fund the sort of design of those areas. OK. So this, this so is not If quite. I can add, I can add a little bit from the core perspective. Thank you, we Brian. Would, so that, that first budget ask, we would essentially decide what do we want our first 
construction contract to look like, so what part of the project would be constructed first, and we would request the design funds to design that feature. So if it's a billion dollar um, construction, I think he's been having some uh, connection problem. Um, and so I'm just going to interpret what he was going to say. If it's a billion dollar first construction project, it would be the design funding for that billion dollar project, which is not all one billion dollars. So it could be like a hundred million if it was ten. Yes. I'm not going to speculate on yeah, exactly or, the amount. Like but five or one dollar, whatever it costs to do yes. the design. Yes. And we won't do this. So, so this this chart is not quite accurate. This is what we will have to do this every two years, and and so we will be working on. You're correct. <laughs> We're going to be, at some points in time, we'll be constructing designing portions some. of the project and designing others, <laughs> so that we can implement as much of it as as possible mm -hmm. over time. That's a very simplified representation of what we'll be doing related to the first part of the phasing work. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we won't be going to Congress every two years. Yes. <laughs> Likely. <laughs> if, for, 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 for 20, 30 years, maybe. <laughs> maybe a very long time. Okay. Probably a very long time. Okay. One of the things I wanted to add uh, for context is when I <laughs> talked to Mr. Harper about this exact topic, he was very clear that when you get an appropriation, you must be able to perform. So you don't want to have any doubt in your construction budget, in your implementation plan, in your, in your preparation for that construction project. You want to have full speed ahead capability and sight that you will perform. And so that's why we would take design dollars before we would take design and construction dollars. Yeah, I think where I was confused is I thought we would go and ask for approval of the project, and then I know subsequently we would have to go and ask for allocations or appropriations of funding throughout the project. But I, so do we? At when is there a point when we have approval for the pro, overall project? I think when the chief's the chief's report recommends yes. the project, we have okay. approval for the project. So and, and so I guess that's semantics, because that's what I was asking. Do we go for approval? And I know appropriations come as needed, because we have to be able to use those funds throughout. But OK, thank you. No, I appreciate that response. I really like the social, social metrics and, and, and all that we've done to include other things. And I'm so glad that we're a pilot for the Army Corps, and hopefully that expands throughout their yeah. their universe that you know take other things into consideration than just the engineering piece of it so i really like that piece of this and so for next steps what are the next steps after public comment so as as i mentioned you know we're going to be going through this public comment period at the same time as harper mentioned we're we're also getting that sort of technical agency and policy review from army corps and peer reviewers um, we're also starting right now to start think about plan refinements. There were there were options in the um, plan that were called independent measures that were sort of optional items. A lot of the uh, kind of nature-based features fall in there, and we're going to be assessing do do we want these to be part of the plan or not, and doing the same with the public and all the other comments that we get. 
here are, we're going to categorize those comments, say here are some you know, themes that are emerging, how will we refine the plan? There's a major milestone in June, which is a sort of core policy review to say this is the direction that we want to go in terms of refining the, uh, the draft plan. And then we will be doing the analysis to kind of support that and, and doing that plan refinement through next year to get to that final recommendation at the end of 2025. Wonderful. Thank you. I guess as part of your question, is it also when will we see you again? <laughs> kind of on this? Um, not exactly sure, but I think this coming summer will likely be an opportunity where we will have sort of said, here's what we heard from the public and here's okay. the direction that we're setting to get to that recommendation. Great. Thank you. This was wonderful. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Next item, please. Item 11A is an informational presentation on the fiscal year 2024-25 and 2025-26 biennial operating and capital budget. For callers who wish to make public comment on this item, please dial star 3 to raise your hand to comment. Hi, Commissioners. I'm Nate Cruz, uh, Deputy Director of Finance and Administration. I'm here tonight with an informational presentation on the biennial budget, both operating and capital sides. Before I get started, I wanted to just thank the staff that put this together. Our, uh, our budget manager retired just as we were kicking off into budget season, so we had a relatively new team that did a fantastic job. So I just want to thank Yvonne Collins, Max Arabin, uh, Carolina Bufka, and Helen uh, <coughs> Balawager with their for their help in compiling this year's budget presentation. All right, before we get into the biennial budget, I want to give you some context for the last what, what we think is going to happen over the next five years. Then we'll get into operating capital and then circle back to a few of the uh, commission approved budget policies and how they apply to the biennial budget. So revenue outlook. Uh, like has been mentioned, we are back to pre-pandemic revenue levels. So that's that's the headline. Right? That's certainly something worth celebrating. When I was here two years ago with the biennial budget, we didn't think this moment would have happened until 25-26. So we're, we're ahead of schedule. Great news. Um, and so now we're really looking towards the future um, with, with that piece of good news under our belt. We, I think we achieved that pre-pandemic revenue uh, milestone because of leisure tourism coming back faster than we thought. That was really led by cruise passenger volume. We set records with that. Um, and I, I also want to point out, you know, we, we hear a lot about the downtown office mar market challenges. Uh, they have a vacancy rate of about 33% as the last statistic I could find. Uh, the office vacancy rate at the port is much lower, 13%. Uh, I think that speaks to the unique character of the facilities that we offer. You know, we're not in the commodity downtown office market game. We have really fantastic locations, great transit. Some of our facilities have a, we'll call it character. <laughs> uh, but we, you know, we don't have fancy lobbies and, and marble atriums, but we, we do have a, a really loyal customer base, and so that served us well. So that's sort of the actual side. As we look forward, uh, and we're putting together a forecast, we put together three scenarios. There's a base scenario that's the yellow dotted line that that base budget is what we build the build the biennial budget around uh, but we also create a high and a low scenario 
and we talk to our divisions, maritime and real estate. They're also talking to our tenants. We talk to the controller's office and SFO to look at, you know, employment data and forecast for uh, hotel occupancy. That's a big one. Uh, to kind of come up with this range of outcomes that we think might happen. Uh, and what really drives the variance between that high case and the low case uh, are four big factors that I wanted to point out. One is our, our ability to release vacant restaurants. Uh, we have a number of vacancies, um, and our ability to get those sites activated and generating revenue again really defines some of the difference between that high and the low. Uh, our ability to implement a new parking model. I won't get into a little more details there, but how fast we can implement that model as well as how fast customers adapt to the sort of the new, new services will make a difference. Office vacancy, I mentioned this earlier, you know, our portfolio of office space, the, the space that we directly lease, not, not, a, not the space that's under a master lease, is not a huge portion of our revenue. It might be about 10%. But the workers that you know go into the offices downtown, they pass through Port Property quite frequently. They're buying lunch in the ferry building. Um, and so that foot traffic also has an impact on our revenue. So that's baked into the high and the low scenario. Uh, and finally, while leisure tourism seems to be back, business tourism has lagged. Business tourism is both people who come to town for meetings and then, then convention attendees. Those, those are the folks that spend the most money when they're here and we're still waiting for that to build back to pre-pandemic levels. So that's the revenue outlook. It's pretty, pretty good. I will say, I think we've, we've already enjoyed the steep part of the recovery. I think from here on out, we're looking at sort of incremental gains. Uh, and some of those we can control and some of those are not within our control. Uh, so we talked about revenues and I wanna map uh, expenses against that. Okay, so what you're looking at in this table, the blue line is revenues and we've added expenses, budgeted expenses in the black line. Um, and so, yes, it's great news that revenues have returned to pre-pandemic levels, but during that era, or during that time of the pandemic, inflation kept pushing the cost of our expenses up, primarily in labor and construction costs. Uh, and so what you see here, or what I wanted to point out is, you know, the distance between the blue and the black line, that's sort of our operating income. That operating income is what we're able to use to invest in capital and in maintenance. And the distance between those two lines before the pandemic and after is very different, right? Our, it's much narrower as you look forward on that graph and our ability to fund uh, or self-fund our own maintenance is gonna be harder as we go forward. Uh, and that underscores what the staff's already been doing to find outside funding. Obviously things like stimulus are a huge win, but there's other grants out there, development projects make a large contribution. And as you've just heard, there's potentially a, a, quite a bit of federal funding available to help with at least the, the seawall side of it, not necessarily the finger piers, but, but that's a very long-term prospect. In the near term, we have some real maintenance challenges ahead of us. <clears throat> okay, so we talked a little bit of revenues and expenses. This, this is my favorite table. It shows sort of all of it in one place. It's a, it's a lot, but I, I think it's worth it because it also incorporates fund balance. Right? This, is, this is our reserve account. And in the table, you can see up at this, the, the, the top row shows where we started the year in fund balance. So in 23-24, we had about $156.6 million in the bank. That's tremendous. That, that's a real high for the port in its history. Um, and so we've used those reserves uh, 
to get us through those emergency conditions, like during the pandemic, we had to dip into the reserves. We've been able to replenish those because revenues have recovered faster. Uh, <clears throat> so what the message to, to, to get across here is that, you know, our fund balance is in good shape. The revenues come in, operating expenses go out, and what's left over, that net surplus or deficit line is, is available for capital. Capital expenses are at the bottom, and then it goes through year to year, and we, we've got a five-year forecast here for you. There's two things I want to point out uh, in the fiscal 24-25 um, column. One is about a third of the way down there, says, it says ARPA stimulus in 24-25. There's $11.7 million there. In the last biennial budget, we appropriated 100% of the stimulus we received. Because revenues re have recovered faster than we expected, we're, going to, we're, we're proposing to redeploy some of those ARPA funds that had been supporting some operating uh, functions and put them into capital. So we really want to you know, maximize the amount we can sink into our, our facilities. So that $11.7 million is not new money. We're just reallocating or redirecting it, rather, to, to capital. The other thing I also wanted to point out in 24-25, towards the bottom of the graph, is a development capital contribution of $16.5 million. In October, uh, the development team brought uh, an item before you about Mission Rock that included a change to the budget and a capital contribution and also ways they were going to reimburse us for costs. That, that capital contribution is reflected here in that $16.5 million. So I just wanted to, those are, those are rows that don't always appear in this graph. So I just wanted to highlight those. Okay. So that's sort of the five-year outlook. Now we'll get into the expense budget, the operating budget. So the table here, um, <coughs> the table here has some data in it it hasn't had in the past, and I wanted to just take a moment to thank President Brandon for her suggestion to, to provide some context. You know, normally the budget document is a forward-looking thing, but we have not included how we've performed in the past in this document. So the previous year actuals on the left side, sort of a new piece of information that we haven't included before. Uh, and I think, you know, what you're seeing here is the operating budget sliced up by division. But I'll point out the 13% the that we came in under budget last year is, on one hand, a good thing, right? I, I'm the CFO. I like to come in under budget. But I want to I say that 13% is a little much. You know, some of this reflects staffing shortages that we've had in our and challenges we've had deploying funds, right? Some of the, this 13% includes some of our difficulty in delivering on, on the resources we'd hoped to spend in that year. Uh, and we're addressing some of that with the staffing proposals we've got in, in the budget today. Uh, if you look on the right-hand side, you actually see sort of the proposed budget, this biennial cycle that's subject to your approval. I'll point out in 24-25, in we're requesting an 8% increase in the operating budget. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, inflation is, is its own factor by itself, which probably accounts for about half of that. Labor, the, the cost of labor continues to go up, and that's our biggest single expense here at the port between our own staff and work orders to other city departments. Uh, the uh, inflationary pressure on labor continues to push up our costs. What's left are very targeted investments and improvements in our service levels and an economic recovery and race equity. And we'll talk about those initiatives. 
Uh, you'll see in the in the 25, 26, the, the second year in the biennial budget, the increase is much more nominal, right? Once, once those changes are sort of in the budget, it, it flattens out in the second year. <clears throat> the new initiatives, uh, and we'll, we'll go into detail, basically a new model for security, a new way to manage our parking lots, and as Director Forbes mentioned, we think that can increase our net operating income from parking by about 50%, and finally some investments in equity, creating these promotional opportunities that are so critical to career advancement. So we'll start with security. I do want to point out the, the, the table that you're looking at does not tie to any particular budget year. This is supposed to be sort of a before and after look. You know, security is going to take a couple years to, to implement this, this change. Uh, and so this is meant to point out that while we're moving a lot of functions around or, or the way we deliver security, that net-net, it's not costing us much. This is a, we're, we're, We think we can do this with a 2% increase. And what we're doing is we're shifting away from contract security, which has you know, served, served us well. It's been flexible. It's been affordable. But we think we can get more quality with this new model. Uh, and that is creating four new security positions within the port. These are port employees, three guards, and one supervisor. We're going to expand our relationship with the police department and leverage uh, the Department of Technology and Security, uh, or I'm sorry, leverage the Department of Technology through cameras and monitoring, very much like <coughs> what the private sector landlord would do. Overall, again, this, this represents about a 2% increase. And so we think this is a, a really great value for us to increase quality. And it really hits right in the bullseye of our you know, uh, clean and safe waterfront. That's not, this is not just for port staff and tenants. This really benefits all the tourism and visitors to the waterfront. I'm excited about this improvement. The second change is uh, in our parking lots. So currently, our parking lots are managed under a lease with a private operator where there's a revenue sharing model where the operator keeps about a third or keeps a third of the gross revenue and passes through the remaining two-thirds to the port. We have, whoops, pardon me, uh, through our research and discussions with the MTA, it looks like the MTA has adopted a much more profitable model, which we, are, which, which we would like to pursue. Uh, and that is we're, uh, a larger reliance on multi-space pay meters in the lots. These are, these are open lots, right? You drive into, there's not a, they're not a downtown parking lot where there's a control arm and a, and a, and a booth. Uh, but there'll be a, a central pay station. That pay station will be managed by the MTA and parking will be enforced by the MTA on that lot. We think that will, will cover most of the, of, the, of the lots. There will be some, however, that still require an operator. Right, there'll be some combination of monthly parking or valet operations that need a physical presence. In those cases, we'll be shifting to a flat fee operations model where we collect 100% of the revenue but pay that fixed monthly cost. Um, again, overall, we think this will provide uh, much better service levels. But I want to say all of this is still just an assumption in the budget. We're still in discussions with the MTA. All of this will come back to you for approval. Uh, in the form of an MOU with the MTA. Uh, and so these are just preliminary estimates. But we really do think there's a tremendous return on investment here. Uh, ultimately, we think that this, this will increase our net revenues by about 50%. That's, that's 
fantastic return on investment. Uh, the last component of, of, of our new investments in the operating budget are creating promotive pathways and some other, other work around race equity. Um, in various departments, we're, we're trying to, to fill the gap so that someone who comes in at entry level can ultimately throughout their career progress into management. Uh, the place we're, we're most heavily investing in that is in maintenance. This is also our most diverse division. So currently, um, there's, I want to say, like 15 to 20 craft shops that specialize in their trades. They're all managed by a supervisor. And then between the, that supervisor, th those supervisors report up to one of two superintendents. And that leap is one that's too far uh, to make from the superintendent role. And so we're creating four new assistant superintendent positions. So that'll create that ladder of opportunity uh, It'll also help us just deploy our resources better, right? There's, like I said, there's 15 to 20 different skills, uh, and getting the inventory in the right place in the, across seven and a half miles of waterfront is a lot of coordination and communication. So we think that extra layer will, will provide a lot of efficiency in how we deploy our resources. We're also adding a machinist helper to help capital project delivery, so that's a new, uh, great entry-level position. We're doubling the training budget so that our own staff can get the skills they need if they want to advance in their career at the port. Uh, and finally, we're increasing the race equity training budget by 10%. So those are the main <clears throat> operating budget changes. On the capital side, this side is just to kind of give you some context in capital. Uh, again, there's, there's, there's three big components of how we do capital planning here at the port. First, we do a 10-year capital plan. We do these biennial budgets now, but in the in-between years, we do a 10-year plan. And in that plan, we try our best to estimate the cost of bringing all of our facilities into a, into a state of good repair and keeping them there for 10 years. So that number is $2.25 billion. We also try to estimate how much would be available to fund that state of good repair and how much we were, we're falling short. And right now, the gap is about $1.6 billion of unfunded uh, state of good repair need. Um, so fast forward to now, right? What, what I'm presenting to you now is a five-year capital improvement program. That's where we actually take specific projects and try to slot them in, given available funding to, to, the, to the appropriate years. The first two years of those five years is the biennial budget that's before you for approval today. I will note in the biennial capital budget, we are asking you, asking for your approval to appropriate port funds, the geo bonds, which are such a critical component of waterfront resilience, are appropriated at the time uh, you approve the bond issuances. So that's a separate piece that will come back to you. Okay, so the five-year capital improvement program is developed in coordination with all the divisions of the port. We we ask all the divisions to submit projects. We look through all the red tag lists. We look at our asset database to see what the model suggests might be due for renewal in the next 10 years. Um, and then we, we, we scrub all the projects. We make sure they have similar assumptions. And then we, we get together as a group of deputies over the course of three days to rank all of the projects uh, according to a number of uh, sort of critical categories. Of course, there's our maritime mission and impacts on race equity, but we also look at 
whether or not we need to honor this, this project honors a prior commitment, right? A lot of times we have uh, commitments to regulatory agencies that we need to meet because they approve something for a prior project. So we consider that. We, of course, prioritize anything that has a health and safety need or meets a health and safety need. Uh, we look at sort of the near-term benefit to fill vacant spaces and create ROI. But we also look at the strategic long-term view of whether or not over the, you know, we're, we're the port, we're going to be around another 150 years. We also need to consider the long-term benefits that might not be cash flow-oriented benefits, but they really address a big maintenance backlog or some other benefit. And then finally, uh, we consider whether or not the port's contribution would also attract outside dollars through grants or development. Uh, but any, ch any chance we have to leverage our dollars with other people's dollars, we, we tend to jump on those. So given those criteria in the ranking, the next two pages, it's a big table, so I just split it up into two slides. Uh, this represents the five-year program. Now, the, the, one of the attachments to the staff report provides you details on each one of the projects, gives you an outline of the schedule, and what sort of uh, priorities it meets. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on individual projects, but I do want to highlight a couple of, 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 of important ones. First, on the southern, <clears throat> in the southern area and southern waterfront, the southern waterfront beautification fund. Uh, I want to show that we're, you know, we continue to meet the, the beautification policy set forth by the commission. So it's an annual allocation to the southern waterfront beautification fund. South Beach Harbor. South Beach Harbor, Harbor is a little unique. It is a sort of a, a self-sustaining, at least financially speaking, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of a, a financial, it's almost an enterprise department within the enterprise where any net operating in from, from South Beach Harbor is reinvested into their capital needs. So that, that row represents their capital. Um, let's see, moving on to the next page. Um, under port-wide. The Facility Assessment Program, this is, uh, we've referred to this as FERPA, it's a Facility Inspection Repair Program, where we have teams of engineers look at our facilities and really get us a much better view of what it would take to bring that facility into a state of good repair, so we continue to fund that work that's really necessary to make informed decisions about our facilities. Dredging, obviously, is right in the heart of our mission, continues to be funded. I want to point out the in the biennial cycle, you'll see zeros in both years for dredging. It's because we have a balance in the current project that can cover the next two years of dredging needs. Dredging funds, our dredging needs are fully met by the proposed budget. Um, the other thing to point out is contingency. We, we certainly need that to meet unforeseen demands as atmospheric rivers seem to be the new norm and we find leaks. Uh, so that, that's an, an important part of what's set aside every year. The project management office helps us deliver those capital projects. What you're seeing budgeted here, you know, most, most project managers bill their times. So the projects they're working on is a sliver of that time that, that can't be billed to a specific project, so that's in here. And finally, the resilience program. Uh, the resilience program has primarily been funded by port direct investment of harbor funds. These have been smaller than geo bonds, but really critical because they're flexible and we've been able to provide them from an, you know, basically day one. And so the proposed budget has 1.7 million in the first year and 2.6 in the second year uh, for continued uh, support of resilience. 
on the waterfront development projects, the row there that says development projects for 10.2 million and 10.8 million, these represent the city's cost of managing these projects. They are reimbursed by the developer. So what you're seeing here is the expense only. If you look back on that, uh, there's a the, the table that shows fund balance and revenues and expenses, you'll see that there's a revenue line that matches this expense line. So there's basically a, <laughs> it washes out of the financial picture for us. The development capital contribution of $16.5 million we spoke about, that red rectangle uh, highlights the amount that we're including in the biennial budget that you're considering. Again, the resilience program bond funds are shown sort of below that box because they're subject to a separate appropriation. Okay. Uh, I did want to touch base on the Southern Waterfront beautification with a little more detail. Due to some error on the, on the side of the staff, the amounts appropriated to the Southern Waterfront beautification through FY1920 had some errors. And in fact, we didn't appropriate any in 1819-1920. I'm happy to report that in this biennial budget, we will have fully restored the amount due to the beautification fund. You can see on the, the bottom line of this uh, table, and I apologize, the 2021 actuals are presented in a different format than the rest. But we got to a basically a seven point or a, a $6.3 million unpaid balance, and we started paying it back. You can see at the bottom right corner, that unpaid balance mm -hmm. goes to zero. So thank you for your patience as we paid that back through the pandemic. <clears throat> so in addition to, you know, adding funding to projects, we actually need people and resources to develop or to, to deliver those projects. And we, we have a, a bit of a challenge. The first is, you know, we, we, we have some port funds that uh, have been appropriated, but there's quite a few of them that have not been spent. And the problem with that is construction costs go up by like eight or six to eight percent per year, and we earn maybe one or two percent interest. So as those funds sit there, they get us less and less of that project. Um, the other component that we're concerned about is the, the stimulus that we've received has a December of 2026 deadline on it. And so what we're proposing in this budget is a number of temporary project-based positions to really almost double the throughput or the capacity of the project management office. We've got, let's see, one, two, four, five project manager positions that are included. We're also including more capacity in contracting. Also in maintenance, we're adding an industrial uh, hygienist to that is critical to doing safety reviews on how things are built and their construction methods. So we really looked at the full sort of uh, where all the bottlenecks were in the process now and are trying to address those through this budget with new resources. Lastly, there are <coughs> two policies adopted by the Port Commission that uh, relate to the budget. First is uh, a requirement that capital investment equals at least 25% of operating revenues. We don't, this, the proposed budget does not meet that uh, criteria. We have not met that criteria since uh, COVID began. And the actual number that we are achieving in this budget is close to 14% when you average the two years. Uh, that compression of the net operating income is real. I, I, I think the 14% is probably realistic. 
moving forward. But we have to consider, you know, as we're attracting in all these outside grants and outside dollars into capital, we're rethinking about, uh, we're rethinking how we might rework this policy or this metric to make it more meaningful for the port if all these outside dollars are, are where we're focused. Uh, but that's subject to a whole separate effort that we'd have to come back to you with if we were ever to amend the policy. Uh, the last policy is about operating reserves. Uh, they're required to meet, uh, sorry, to equal or exceed 50% of annual expenses. We blow that one out of the water. At its lowest, we're at 126% of annual expenses. So again, that our fund, that's our fund balance. We're doing great. Um, and the bond rating agencies love to see that. So that's a good one to always have in my pocket. <clears throat> so a couple of key takeaways. Again, the compression on our ability to fund capital will continue well after the pandemic. I think those, that's going to be one of the lasting effects and really drives our need to seek outside dollars. In that context where we have to trade precious dollars and decide for whether it should go to operating or capital, we've made some really targeted investments, specifically in economic recovery, then new security and parking models, and also in race equity by, by pinpointing some places we can add promotive opportunities in the uh, org chart. Uh, for next steps, we'll be back here with a action item at the end of February for your approval. And with that, I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Great presentation. Is there any public comment on this item? Seeing none, do we have anyone on the phone? There are no public comment at this time. Thank you. Public comment is closed. Commissioner Lee. Um, great report, Nate. I think, I mean, it's good news because once we get the um, properties rented out, it's going to be extra revenue uh, to play with. So that gives us a little breathing room. I thought we were going to be in the hole <laughs> since that time. But I'm going to go over a few things um, that you mentioned. So on the security, um, you want to go more in-house, uh, which is all right. Um, I'm, I'm really up on security. Uh, would that also include um, who's going to be in charge of the illegal vendors when it comes to security and things like that? Is that still going to be outsourced to public works? Is that something we're going to take in-house? Are we going to get the revenue from the tickets? Uh, or is that something that uh, we don't want to, you know, we still want to pan off to another agency for? That's number one. I want to give you a kind of a list so if you can keep track. Okay. Um, so the parking lot, I'm on the board of the Portsmouth Square Garage Board, and we deal with SFMTA, and they, they outsource their management, and they bid it out. And it's been good, and it's been bad. You know, I, I tend to see, um, you know, just basically um, managing another group that kind of sits around, you know, sometimes. But what, what, what failed is, is uh, car break-ins still. Uh, when we had uh, our in-house person at do security to walk around, we had less car break-ins than giving it out to uh, an outsource. So I'm just, uh, you know, kind of put that on your radar about that. And um, as far as creating positions in the middle management, I, I really support um, uh, promotions, but I also know that some of our 
outside departments, SFMTA and whatever, are kind of heavy in, my, in the middle management. And so crisis happens, you know, of course, we, they don't get laid off, you know, they're in there and then suddenly uh, there's a struggle to, to keep that budget going uh, during a crisis. So I just kind of caution how many extra managers, do we actually have work for them uh, to do rather than create these um, middle road spaces. But I agree that people should be promoted in-house. So that's that one. Um, as far as the budget's great, I, I mean, I, it's deployed well. Um, since we have to spend money, uh, like you say, that we're, we're supposed to be mandated to, um, I like to look at other opportunities that we can also make money from it. Not just beautification, like maybe a more grass or more land space, but something that actually, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, an EV parking lot, you know, that helps uh, promote um, energy efficient cars. But at the same time, we make money from charging stations. Uh, since we have to spend the money anyway, maybe we'll make some money from that. So, I mean, it's, uh, certain things like that, and we do have extra funds to look into. And as far as your uh, deploying your capital reach for new managers, um, and maybe this is already, I know we have one person, but it'd be nice to have maybe a business <coughs> opportunity manager to see what small businesses, maybe we have some land that's unused that maybe that person can maybe find somebody in the district that might want to open something. Uh, you know, that's, that's probably another position that could be well utilized. And I guess that's it for me. Uh, Nate, but, can I help you with the answer to the first two yeah. questions? And then you take it from there. Okay. And Mike Martin um, and Kyle Thomas might want to step in. On illegal vending, um, it's a bit of a complicated uh, statutory or legal uh, situation or context whereby Department of Public Works really does need to be there with us. The citywide ordinance empowers them for illegal vending enforcement. That said, the Department of Public Works definitely does not do vending enforcement on their own. They're with us, with our security teams, um, with the public health department, sometimes with the fire department. Um, there's also unlicensed vending related to cannabis and alcohol that does not require the public uh, works department or the public health department for that matter. And we can effectively deal with that with the police department. So there's different kinds of vending depending on who's out there. Uh, but there's much in the security um, program that has us leaning into unlicensed vending, which we've been doing for some time. But we want to continue to amplify our efforts in in um, preventing unlicensed vending from port property. Anything else to add? I, I, th I agree with all that you said. I think just to be crystal clear about these uh, in, in increases in security staffing, they would not be, it would be more about after hours and weekends uh, coverage for port property overall and not the vending hotspots. But the goal would be to have these people in-house so that if we need that kind of resource, we would have that in addition to these interagency resources. 
Thank you. That's really important clarification. On maintenance and middle management. Um, so we are sensitive to the concept of overbloating management or being too heavy on middle management. We like to definitely invest in line staff, there's no doubt. But what we've seen is that Pier 50 doesn't have middle management, and we do at Pier 1. And so what we've been seeing through our equity lens is there's, there's a lack of opportunity because those middle man management positions have not been afforded to the maintenance division the way they have to our quote-unquote professional ranks. Um, so we want to undo that situation, and we do believe there's very big utility in having these positions in place to, to lead the resource allocations, to do planning on the work, to look at the cost estimates, to work on team, to work through problems. There's just so much that helps with one person that has that proactive job of team management. So we think it's going to take us a long way. Uh, and Commissioner, I'd, I'd add the, uh, we, we do an annual race equity survey, and what we hear every year is is the lack of promotive opportunities. So, so we're hearing it from from port staff that this is a need. It, we're we're definitely a lean organization, and and this is not not adding yet another layer of middle management. Um, your other questions about um, new ways to generate revenue through maybe an EV parking lot. Or, or also creating uh, a role to serve as sort of a business development role. Uh, I'll take that back to the real estate team, and we'll we'll look at maybe opportunities and whether or not that that we think that there's a, a way to carve out resources for that, and get back to you at the next hearing if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank I you. think I got all your questions, but let yeah. me, did I miss anything? I mean, there's a need. Let's go for it. You know, if there's. A budget. I just don't like too much, you know, <laughs> unnecessary things. But if it moves us forward, I'm all for it. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Harrington. Thank you, President Brandon. Uh, thanks so much to you and your team, Nate, for putting all this together. And kind of by definition, we always focus on what's changed and does not mean we don't love all the rest of you that did all this work to put the budget together, even when we're not asking about specific things about your divisions today because we're looking at things that are changing. But thank you for all the work getting it together and, and making it happen. Um, in terms of staffing, I guess a couple things. Um, we've had a briefing. I appreciate that. But to confirm kind of publicly, out of all the substitutions and all the things else going on, I understand there's no negative impact on any current staff. Is that true? That's correct. There's okay. nothing we're proposing would eliminate any existing positions. That's great. Thank I'm you. I'm sorry. Would not would not affect any any current employees right. at the board. Yeah. Filled positions. Correct. Um, I actually I like the, you know, if you don't have staff, you can't do your projects. So adding engineering staff, contracting staff makes perfect sense. I think it's funny to listen to the whole discussion of middle management because it was like the thing you couldn't have is middle management. You got to get rid of them all. And I don't think we realized how it just disrupted career ladders for people, and so. Yes, they don't just get created because we like to have them, but the idea that they can do work and that they, they promote that kind of career ladder, I think is a wonderful thing. So I'm, I'm in favor of doing that. And, and, and I think to protect them, we have to make sure that they're valuable and they work and all that stuff happens. But I, I feel like the, the pendulum's swinging again, which I think is probably a, a good thing. Um, on a couple of the other things going on, on the, on the security, I totally get how contract security can be really not what, what we need. I, I think that the city has done so many different things in terms of security. 
you know, we have police, we have sheriff, we have park police, we have, you know, patrol specials, we have one left that people want to add more to that. We have community ambassadors at CBDs. We have all these different ways of doing it, and nobody's found, I think, the right way to do all of it. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm happier in some ways to have our own security people man, uh, protecting facilities to the extent that they would actually be on the street doing things. I think that opens us up to different discussions about training and supervision and risk management and all of that. So as you start to work that through, I'd love to have you kind of come back and make sure that we all kind of get what it is what they're going to be doing and does it all work the right way and, and why none of the other kind of options the city has would necessarily work for us. And I, I get, you know, sheriff is overworked and they're all in overtime and so is, and so is police. I mean, but, but there are other ways of doing this and just to make sure that we kind of pick the right way. You know, when you only have three people and one manager, it gets back to that career advancement again. It means that it's harder to, to attract and retain people if there's no place to go. You know, and so to, can we fit in with a larger way of doing it in the city or is, are there other choices, I guess, is, is the question. Um, on, the, on the parking, you know, again, a 50% increase in revenue is kind of stunning. Um, we, we do have, we have a reputation, I think, appropriate that we are anti-car in San Francisco, but I don't think we want to add to that by doing this, and, and a 240% increase in citations certainly looks like that. So if we can, as we're doing this, if we can talk about the efficiency of doing it right, as opposed to the discouragement of driving, you know, or the discouragement of bringing people into the, into the port areas from a variety of ways of doing transportation, I think that would be good. Um, and again, since it's so big, again, I think um, kind of periodic reports of, is it, is it working? Is this, you know, the security issues that Commissioner Lee brought up and other things, I think will be important as we go down that path to make sure that really is doing the things that we need to get done. But I, I appreciate why you're doing it. I just want to make sure that we kind of get it and, and can keep track of it as, as it's happening. Um, and the idea of re-looking at that uh, capital investment reserve policy and capital investment policy, yeah, quite open to that. So thanks for looking at that. Thank you. Thank you. Vice President Gilman. Um, well, thank you, um, Nate, for the report and for the budget. I'm really great. A lot of my questions got asked or answered through fellow commissioners. Um, just wanted to echo how I think incredible it is to be sitting here as someone who runs a large nonprofit that you have, you know, over 127% of your annual operating budget in reserve. I, I really think we need to note that as an enterprise department and remind the public that we're not a general fund department, that taxpayer dollars are not going to support our staff. Um, I know I might be putting you on the spot or maybe Director Forbes knows too, but my working assumption has always been compared to other departments um, that have similar reaches of geographic reach and depths and trades that were pretty thinly staffed because I really support the increased staffing for the department actually. Um, do we have any idea what the staff of, you know, I don't, I don't know what a good comparison would be, um, you, you know, who has infrastructure, you know, park and rec or PUC or someone, what their head counts are? Everyone tells us, tells me we're small. When I give yes. our staffing numbers, surprisingly small, like no other department head can believe it actually because of the span and, and impact right. of the port's right. properties. Um, we're, our sister agencies are often much larger than we are for reasons because their portfolios are much larger than ours. Um, it's hard to find an equivalent department to What's the Port of San Francisco. Two thirty. 
Yeah, I had count. 220, 230. 230. So, yeah. So, I mean, my, I, I could be completely wrong, so hopefully, you know, those department heads don't, like, throw something at me. But I, I, I do believe that the planning department or the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing actually tops over 230. Um, and, you know, they, while they do direct services, they mostly administer funds. So I guess I just want to use that as a counterpoint that I think we're doing really incredible work with a pretty thin team. So I was happy to yeah, see that we're, we're, we're upping our staffing. Um, that's just my personal point of view. Um, and particularly in this way, I, I love the idea of coming back and getting maybe a larger overview and a presentation now that we have a new, newish head of security, if that's the right title, I apologize, sir, for the port. Um, the, you know, sort of how we're doing that. Um, so do you think it's important? I think it dovetails to the parking. Um, you know, there have been a lot of, some concerns raised to me, particularly around the parking lot near the Exploratorium. And I, one of the things I've said is that, you know, we don't operate that or, you know, it's third party out. So if we're going to take back parking and play a bigger role, we have to ensure safety to a level we can in car break-ins. And I agree with Mr. Commissioner Lee, we can't rely on SFMTA to do that. So that's just, one thought I had, um, but um, and happy to look at the policies again too. So thank you for this budget. We have 250 employees. Rec Park has 975. <laughs> How many departments? And we get more work done. Actually, yeah. um, more work gets done here. Yeah. Look how great he is on this. I know. Yeah, no, well, I, I know. I feel like I need a superpower to do this. <laughs> Have it someplace here. Oh, where'd it go? Uh, public health has seven thousand seven hundred. Well, that's wow. different. Well, that's the um, hospital. The city city planning has two hundred and two. Yeah, and they just plan. So I mean, we're actually doing things. <laughs> so, I, I think uh, one I of the, that with love. <laughs> one of the things around our staffing size I can share with you is. When I look to other department heads to talk about how they're doing contracting or how they're doing, you know, design work or uh, engineering work, I always find their staffing is so much larger. You know, so much more intri intricate in terms of positions and and um, contract support. We have a lot of one chair seats in our organization, and I think we are very thin, and I think we're very thin because we've been, frankly, underwater with our assets for as long as we can remember, and that's held down our capacity to grow. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we work on having a great work environment, because we have chairs that are really full of work, and we have to work on life balance and support for our staff, and figuring out um, secession planning and backup planning for those one-chair assignments. So I think you're right, Vice President Gilman, we are thinly staffed as city agencies go. But, but I think um, because you're thinly staffed, you have a more efficient team. Mm -hmm. Because when you're too big, you have to wait for too many people to make up their mind. <laughs> and I, and that, I hate waiting for things, okay? So that's why this staff is so good compared to other departments that I have to deal with because I could get an answer right away. Th things are followed up right away. But yeah, maybe the workload might be too much and let's add a few people. But I don't believe that a huge staff really makes a place better. Small <laughs> Honestly. but mighty. Yes. Right. <clears throat> we have great staff. Nate, thank you so much for this budget and thank you for briefing me in advance 
on the budget. Um, you d you've done a great job on, um, in explaining our operating budget and what the plans are for the, uh, for the next year. Um, I like the new initiatives with the improved security in-house, um, the parking model, the enhanced parking model, hopefully, that w less, less citations, huh? <laughs> and the promotion pathways. I think those are all great new initiatives and um, will enhance our budget. And so in our discussions, you and I have talked about the fact that, you know, the devil's in the details, and I really want to understand as we discuss the resilience is a multi-year, multi-generational opportunity for the port, and really want to understand what the, bu what the budget is. What's the annual budget? What's the biannual budget? What are we doing with these funds? And so how you present the operating budget would be great to see that presented with the resilience funds. Uh, thank you, President Brandon. We're, you know, this has been a challenge for us. We're in such early stages with this mega project, and we've, you know, we continue to re provide reports at a, you know, with normal capital sort of categories, planning and design, and, uh, but, but it, it, it feels different, right? This is a much bigger project, and in the near term, it, it's still going to remain in, in sort of early times. And so, you know, uh, we're certainly going to go back and, 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 and try to think of a different way to present to you the work that we plan on achieving in the next, you know, during this biennial cycle in, in a way that doesn't fit maybe into the traditional capital reporting, but gives you some milestones and some transparency. You know, so at the end of the budget, you can say, you know, you can measure our progress and we can, we can show you what we achieved and if we achieved our plan. Uh, but we certainly need to make some improvements in well, that process. Well, if we're asking for 70 million, we have to know what we, have to know what we want to do with that 70 million. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I, I would think it would be easy to say, this is what we plan to do with this 70 million dollars this year. And then we'll know at the end of the year if we achieve that goal or not. We're working on preparing that information for you. Okay, so you may have that by the next meeting, or is this a long-term, or I just I'm going to do my I, best. I think I've been asking <laughs> for this for a few years, and I would just love to see during the budget time, because it's our only opportunity when we see everything, one big picture of everything, to, uh, the, the resilience uh, has to have a budget. It has, we, we, there has to be some transparency into it, not case by case, not project by project, but what is the overall goal? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm requesting again. And hopefully, hopefully we can try and find some solution to presenting to us what exactly we're doing with those funds <coughs> in, um, as we do our operating budget. And also with the Southern Waterfront Beautification Funds, I mean, it's great to know that we're catching up on past due rent, and it's great to know that we're putting a certain amount in this year, but where are we? What's the balance of the fund? I know we saw a, um, at the last meeting a proposal for expending funds, but how does that, uh, is that this year? So it'd be great just to see a budget overall, annual, when we do our operating, our capital, to see a resilience budget, to see the beautification budget, because those are separate pots of funds. So for me, it would just be great to see an overall of all the funds we're discussing within the budget 
for this, these cycles. Uh, for the Southern Waterfront Beautification Fund, we're, we're already working on that based on our, our, our discussion during the briefing. So I will definitely have that for you by the next uh, hearing. And and we will do our level best to get you that sort of resilience plan for the next few years and where that money will go um, uh, by the next hearing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I appreciate your patience with, with us on this. We've we we have we have had this conversation before, and we we, we tweak how we present it, but we're we'll get there. Thank you. Vice President, uh, I'm so sorry. On that note, because it, it's that is like the biggest tranche of restricted funds we're going to get for a project. It would also just be good to know that, which I just don't know. It's a blind spot for me completely. We did not discuss this at the briefing, but if it's go, if that if those funds, if that 70 million is going to add surge staffing or surge positions, I think that's the other reason why it'd be so helpful to show it during this time, so we can understand that interconnectedness sort of the way you did at the very end with those capital positions that you said might phase away, I think having that connection is important. Okay. And one Thank question you. I forgot to ask on the last item, but it's all about funding. <laughs> when, we go for, when we go for our appropriation, do we have to have our match available when we get that appropriation? or? So Harper, Harper would be the better person oh, okay. to answer this, but I'll, I'll explain what, what I know, because this is in front of us. Um, uh, the Army Corps, after you get your project authorized, requires you to enter into something called a project partnership agreement. And there's a standard sort of form agreement that they present to local communities. It's really difficult to negotiate changes to that agreement other than the scope of, of what's being conducted under it um, and usually there's one for design and then there's one for construction and part of that agreement is requiring evidence that the local partner has the funds to match up with the federal funds that are coming so it's not necessarily a prerequisite to the appropriation but so the Army Corps can get the money from Congress but they can't spend it until you show. They can't give it to us got until we okay. got it. And sometimes you have to write them a check. <laughs> so we had this on Pier 36, right? The yes. removal project. And we, because they were performing the work, we needed to cut them a check 30 days after the commission approved that agreement. That surprised me and John Woo at the time, very, a lot. Um, but per, depending on who's performing the work, we may have to actually transfer the funds at that point. But it also, I mean, when we say local match, that could be state funding, that could be a variety of funding, it isn't necessarily city funding. And there's also, in the feasibility study, it had our 35% being 4.7 million, but 1.3 billion, 1.3 billion was in kind, land easements, right of way services, those things. So there's different ways to play with some of it too. And uh, this is a major question that everybody in the city has about, about how we're going to address that local match. And we're starting those discussions with Director Forbes, and we'll branch out to other city finance leaders. And we'll be back to you to try and paint a picture about how that works in more detail. And this is a budget question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Nate. Great job. And we look forward to you coming back in a couple weeks. Thank you. Next item, please. Item 12 is new business. 
I have recorded two items. One is an update on the performance of the parking program, should it be approved in the budget. And the second is to provide um, a budget on the resilience program at the next uh, item to approve the budget. Is there any other new business? And beautification. And beautification. I, I, think, it would be, I think it would be good at some point to get a introductory overview of the fact that security is in-house now, we're adding these positions, kind of like what's the framework of how we want to engage with that um, and how we're also going to incorporate our, our equity framework. So I don't know if it would be um, a joint presentation um, between the, the head of that division um, and our equity officer, but I think that might be really important for our values at the port. Any other new business? Can I have a motion to adjourn? So moved. Is there a second? Second. Meeting adjourned at 5.49 p.m. It's free. It was looking up in here and now it's freezing. That's free.